Hey guys, uh, it's Chris Bircher. Welcome back to Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. And I'm uh, pretty sure that's that's true, and that's uh, where I'm hanging my hat anyway. This is episode 14. What is COVID trying to teach us? Or COVID, what can we learn from it? Um, but more, I've been thinking a lot lately. Obviously, I had to do uh, some sort of coronavirus episode it's on my mind all the time, just like it's on everybody else's mind all the time. And what I can't help but wonder is, uh, w- what is there to learn from how things are going? And I'm just going to throw some ideas out there about well, what I think. Um, remember, you can uh, find all this stuff every Friday on my webpage, www.chrisbircher.com. I do a lot of um, reminders on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. So if you have any of those things, I release these as both videos on YouTube, my YouTube channel, Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom, as well as podcasts, which you can find as direct downloads on my website, or you can subscribe to one of the many podcast providers. And anything you want to do to participate uh, in a discourse with uh, me and my ideas would be wonderful. Or if you're just simply curious uh, to listen, that's fantastic. So coronavirus, what is it trying to teach us? Um, number one, I think if there's if there's anything that it taught us is that we needed to have a plan. And I think a lot of the discomfort that we're experiencing lately stems from simply not knowing what to do. It's one thing to not know what the virus is and how it's going to behave. And so it makes dealing with it and not getting sick and managing any potential outbreaks challenging simply because we don't know. And that's fair. Uh, we can't know uh, everything specifically about things like how a virus is going to, a novel entity is going to kind of perform in the world. That's not our fault. But not having a plan on what to do if something like that happens is sort of our fault. And so I think we learned that we, we probably should have had a backup plan, a plan B, or a uh, what do we do in this situation. And of course, that's related to governmental leadership and sort of our societies, and some of them better than others, but it's hard to tease apart all those variables and say, well, because you know Denmark has a, a democratic socialist government, they did better than us. You, you, you can't really say that. Although it is real, uh, kind of easy to say communism uh, is, a, is a good <laughs> way to... Uh, manage viruses, but I'm not sure that's the answer overall. Uh, but anyway, so there's there's the the fact that we didn't have a plan. Uh, that's a bad, that's not necessarily a good thing. And and one thing that I just made a, a just a casual um, observation is that there's a lot of jokes going around the internet about how inter- introverted people are kind of like, hey, this is social distancing is no big deal. This is how I prefer to live. And then there's extroverted people who are, are suffering a little bit more because they can't go out and, and get energized by being in a group of people or a crowd of people or whatever. But my point with that is there are some people in the world who are just, you know, sort of better equipped for this. And, and I guess my real point is that you know, some people um, don't mind or, or, or social distancing and sort of some of the changes that we've made are more in line with some people's personalities than they are others. And so if introversion and extroversion is a continuum and ambiverts are somewhere in the middle, let's just say some people are sort of better and less equipped to deal with um, a response to a pandemic, which is which indicates that some people can actually do it and some people are actually sort of naturally doing this sort of thing anyway. So it's not outside the scope of our human behavior to think that we can 
behave in such a way. It's just that some people have to sacrifice more. And, and I am a more introverted person. And I joke, my parents and, every, and my wife and I all joke about how this is fine with us. We don't miss, uh, you know, going to concerts or, or some of the things that we can't do or we're not supposed to do right now, whereas other people really, truly do and are suffering from it. And I, and I appreciate that. And I can empathize with that, even though it's not how I am um, naturally. And, and maybe that's an interesting point right there is just how empathy plays in all this. And, and, and hopefully we'll talk about that. Uh, but the bigger point for all that is that we can do this. Sure, some people are going to have to sacrifice more. Some people will have to sacrifice less, sacrifice, sacrifice less. But it's not outside the realm of reality that the next time a pandemic comes along, we could um, alter our behavior some of us and get through it. We're show, we're, you know, we're getting through this in a very haphazard sort of way. So there's no reason to think we couldn't do it in an organized way. Um, and, and, and sort of related to your natural introversion and ambroversion or uh, extroversion sort of thing is just the discomfort we experience when we have to change our behavior. And maybe we should be a little more, willing to be uncomfortable in the world for the greater good or for society or and it goes back to that sort of an individual versus a group mentality of you know to a certain degree there's um 7.8 billion people on the planet it no person is an island and and, and there's some sort of um you know your rights are yours until they start to infringe on other people and there's some duty or responsibility, I think we're realizing that we have to our fellow people. And some, there's a continuum of, well, whether or not people agree with me on that, uh, because of liberty, uh, and, and, and more drastically libertarianism that sort of, um, prioritizes individual freedom over anything else. And, 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 and like it or not, to me, that seems to be like where some of our problems are coming from. And I don't know how to deal with that. Maybe we'll get to that point. But to a certain extent, I think we have started to identify, for, for those that aren't necessarily aware of this or um, have never thought about this, it's becoming painfully obvious that some things in life are needs and some things are wants. And, you know, when I, when I was involved in the brewing business, my partners and I used to talk about this all the time, especially with our staff, is that things that cost a lot of money that aren't absolutely necessary to the business uh, became sort of undoable. And we would say, you know, these things are wants. These things are not needs. Um, having a, a ADA accessible bathroom in a public building is a need. <laughs> there are codes that say you can't have a business without one. Um, having uh, pearl handled uh, flush handles on the toilet are, are wants. And that's, a, again, society is going to disagree on that. Individual people are going to disagree about what are needs and what are wants. And so, again, I think that's sort of sometimes the role of a democracy to decide those things as a people. And we really didn't have those very well outlined. And so uh, kind of like what is an essential business? Is a bar an essential business? I personally don't think so. Um, if you still have access to alcohol uh, and you can drink it at home, it's not communist to think that maybe for safety, we shouldn't allow bars to be open. Maybe that's more of a want. Um, and again, 
how these things are determined, how these decisions are made, I think is at the, at the level of government. But we're just all so f- afraid of infringing on other people's rights that we never really sat down and had a discussion about what thing, these things are. And so, and so my bigger point leading up to all this stuff and what I really want to talk about today is that we, the coronavirus is telling us, is providing us kind of a blessing in disguise, an opportunity an opportunity that doesn't exist in the regular world without some drastic intrusion of a problem. I say this all the time, you know, you you can't change government because it's too big of a system. Sort of like maybe a good example is the switch from oil-powered cars or power or electricity to natural um, uh, or solar or some other opportunity, it's hard to change those things because there's so many people employed in those businesses. There's so much infrastructure that exists. Businesses are dependent on these things. You can't just one day say all the petroleum industry is dead and we're going to flip the switch to solar. It just doesn't work like that. It's and and so one of the one of the excuses that people use all the time is that it's too difficult to change the system unless something drastic happens. So, given that we might have an opportunity here, I guess my observations are sort of based around the things that I've seen that I think have been difficult to change or people have been using the excuse that we can't change these things. And now all of a sudden, we're forced to alter them and and so we have an opportunity to almost re, completely rehab these things. But what are these things? What so these things are um, systems, or even values, or even lifestyles that you know, frankly, many of which could use an overhaul. And the basic ones that I want to talk about are things like how we shop, uh, how we entertain ourselves, how we use transportation. Uh, the, the, the sort of the organization of small businesses, then into schools and even family models, our basic economy and our government. I know that's a lot, and I, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on either one on any particular one, but let's let's work through them. So shopping has changed. Um, when you uh, say what is essential and what is non-essential, it's made us really think about, you know, do we really need to go to Target twice a day, five days a week? to look around and see what we can spend money on? but Probably not, but that's a habit that we've gotten into. Sure, I think we all sort of miss Target, um, or we all miss going um, to look at clothes or try on shoes or um, browse the car lot. I mean, I don't know. The things that people do, I think we've realized that part of our shopping, our consumerism, um, of course, a lot of that's shifted to online, but we still miss going in stores. A part of our consumerism is just is, is not a need; it's a want. It's um, you know, and it's cool that we have the luxury to go blow twenty bucks on knickknacks uh, to put on a table that'll eventually get thrown away and replaced with new ones. That's that's all well and good, but I think we've learned that that's we can live without those things. And you know, we have an opportunity to say, well, why did I do that in the first place? Is there something? in my life that's out of balance that makes me want to fix it with this when it doesn't really fix it. And, you know, it, it, it points us toward, um, 
um, improving our mental health by getting to the source rather than um, using these these distractions. Going back to that uh, distraction episode, uh, just something to think about because I mean, basically, what we need to buy are groceries. You know, it goes back to the food shelter um, idea of our basic needs, and even that can be done. I just bought groceries today online. They they bought everything. They loaded it all up. I went and picked it up. It was contactless. It cost me $5 more than my um, order would have been, but you know, a week's worth of groceries for a family of six isn't cheap. It, it you know, it was probably 5% of of the total bill, which is isn't a terrible thing. And it was good for the business to be able to offer me that. It's great for that they will do that for only five dollars. Anyway, uh, and, uh, and and sort of we'll get to small businesses in the middle in a minute. But then you know after shopping, which is uh, arguably a large part of that is a necessity, but a large part a part of it isn't. Um, actually, it's probably a small part of it is a necessity, and a, and a large part of it isn't necessary, except that we want to. And that's and I don't want to say that. I'm not trying to say we need to live in a society where nobody gets anything that they want and there is no luxury behavior and there's no, um, you know, um, luxury con- consumerism. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying there at, at times, can't we give that up? Uh, just, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the problem is. Uh, and then entertainment. So, you know, going to the movies Maybe going to the shopping is part of your entertainment, um, going to concerts, going to bars, doing karaoke night, um, out with your friends, um, you know, group public gatherings for entertainment purposes, going to play putt-putt, golfing even. You know, there's a big thing where golfing was seemed fine for social distance because you could social distance and you're outside, but then all of a sudden maybe it wasn't because no matter what, people got to go to the bathroom. You know, you can't be outside. It's not 100% protective. But anyway, um, we need entertainment. And, of course, a lot of us probably have watched the heck out of Netflix and and found other forms of entertainment. Video games, you know, the Nintendo Switch. You couldn't get one uh, when everybody sort of realized we were going to be home for a while. They sold out everywhere. There are other forms of entertainment. I, I know we need entertainment, but... Is it really that big of a deal that you can't go see a movie? I mean, or are we just getting picking something to to, to get mad at um, and venting our anger on this one thing rather than just sort of saying it's okay? I'm doing my part. I can um, sacrifice my need to go see a movie for a few months. Um, and and of course, I'm going to get to business in a minute. That that has an effect on the entertainment industry because they can't really make movies, and and so in six months there won't be any new TV in the fall if the TV can't be filmed uh, and new movies coming out. Um, I heard something on the radio today about this movie that was supposed to come out and generate all this income and revenue, and it can't because nobody can go to the theaters to watch it. But you know, entertainment. There's some needs there, but I would say the vast majority of entertainment is a want. And again, can't we agree to make a sacrifice as individuals to 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 give up some of our wants for the greater good? Uh, another one is is transportation. You know, one of the big things I noticed is that I spend so much less on gas because I don't drive as much. Number one, my youngest daughter isn't going to daycare a few days a week, uh, and so I don't have to drive her to do that. And I'm not just 
aimlessly going out places, um, especially certainly stores when I don't need to. So I burn a lot less gas. And, and then of course there's flying. And my nephew was just telling me how, um, one of the major airlines released a, a memo that said, um, we are going to continue to enforce the no center seat flights like we have been up till now. And he was like, you know, I've flown twice for work and they were every, the, the flights were full. They were not doing that. <laughs> um, and so it seems to me like, you know, cramming a bunch of people in a, in a, in a, in a uh, super efficient, uh, high, high passenger, high density transportation device. That's great for the planet. That's the way that we probably should be moving around on buses and, and, and trains and planes and, 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 those things rather than driving our own cars everywhere. But should we be doing that during a pandemic? Sure, the airlines have to stay in business. Again, it all comes back to the economy. Uh, But is that flying necessary? Okay, if it's a vacation, probably a want and not a need. And I know it's it's weird. I myself don't COVID shame me. Shame me. I my family took a vacation to the beach. Um, that's, I, I still feel incredibly guilty about, I mean, we need to do those things and I'm self-quarantined for, for two weeks afterwards. We need to travel for pleasure. I understand that. Uh, I hope that that could be minimized for the, again, for the greater good. And then some of the business travel that I've heard about, some of that seems less necessary, uh, especially given how much we've been using Zoom and FaceTime and things like that, can't uh, c- couldn't a lot of that business? But again, now how do you determine what's essential and what isn't? How who determines whether or not a flight like my nephew is necessary, or you know, can it be postponed? Can it be handled over email? Can it be handled whatever? We're going through these things now, and 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 and, and like a lot of this, again, it's an opportunity to go through how we do these things and how we set rules and how we can potentially have a plan B pandemic backups plan to say, here's the rules for restrictions to shopping, entertainment, and travel when something like COVID-19 happens. You know, we're smart people. We can come up with a set of criteria that help us decide what is a need or a want. And yes, there's going to be a whole lot of libertarian type people that strongly believe in the Constitution as a as a living document that that tells us the ultimate rules of life. Um, not trying not to make fun of those people. I understand people do look at things like the Bible and the Constitution extremely literally, and they drive um, dominate their thinking and their sort of the way the way they think the rules of life were meant are, are meant to be. Uh, and there's a lot of good things about all those documents, whatever, but. Those people are going to get angry when we try to restrict any kind of behavior, but I still think it needs to be done. And, and, and again, maybe that's the first step. Do we need a plan B? I think we do, or otherwise we wouldn't be saying all this stuff. And so there's an opportunity for all of these different things for us to set some criteria about what we do in a situation like this is all I'm saying. Um, and then, you know, all that, again, sort of goes toward the economy. And one of the biggest things, because it affected me personally, is all the small businesses that are struggling because they don't have a plan B. Their business model is people come into my store, browse for goods that they may not need. They may be once. And all of that all of a sudden has changed. What I have noticed is that some of these businesses have been able to successfully pivot either to online sales 
or delivery, like a lot of the breweries have switched from packaging beer in kegs and serving it by the pint to packaging beer in cans and delivering it around town. You know, some businesses were able to pivot. Some businesses that that have the capacity and ability to pivot weren't. And then some businesses simply don't have the capacity to pivot. But my solution in my particular business, and this has actually caused falling out among the partners, and I'm probably going to get out of the brewing business altogether, is businesses can be shut down uh, to where you have a minimum bill, bills. The power can be shut off. The water can be shut off. The insurance policies can be stopped. All businesses can cease and if you own the property, then you're set, and all you have to do is pay rent. That's our math, My math on our business suggested that if we tried to stay open, pay the minimum amount of bills that we needed to, be, to have the facilities be open and have employees there so that we can do business, we weren't going to generate enough revenue to pay that. Uh, and so that put us on this path of bankruptcy, um, which may still happen or may not. Or we'd have to pump in a bunch of money from some other source because we maxed out our debt capacity and all these other things. Um, find investors, you know, other plans. But one of the, one plan was just to shut it down and wait it out. Um, I, you know, small businesses that obviously no, not most of us didn't have that plan in place because we never thought it was going to stop. But maybe we should. Maybe a business plan ought to have changed in unforeseen circumstances sections that say, what will we do in the event that we cannot produce revenue for whatever reason? Novel idea, right? Nobody ever thought about it, but maybe that's just something we should do. Or a, a pivot, you know, maybe there's four or five tiers of changes that you will implement. Um, not something that we want to think about, but maybe it's something that we should be thinking about. And, and Part of me doesn't have a whole lot of sympathy for people that don't have that plan, but then most of me does because, again, this is a, 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 something that hasn't really happened for 100 years. It's fair um, to be unprepared, but we can only use it for as an excuse for so long, uh, I guess is my point. And then, and then finally, well, not finally, but another huge one, another big, big controversial one, and I'm sure a lot of these things I'm saying are controversial, and all I'm really saying is we have an opportunity to think about them. And part of this thought process is maybe we ought to have a, a plan uh, for this happening again or similar things happening again. Uh, public schools. You know, my kids are looking at wanting to go back to school. And I just think it's a disaster waiting to happen, um, given that at least the teachers are very likely to get it. You know, where I am, the peak is coming and it's, you know, it's going to coincide with going back to school, which is only going to accelerate the problem again, because you're putting people together in a small space where it's hard to control the, the, the transmission of the virus. And that's what we're seeing um, here anyway, is that the more people don't social distance, the more people try to go back to normal, um, the more people are getting it. And so I think going back to school. And of course, a lot of places like, like other places around the country, we have a hybrid plan where school people, kids go to school less. They're split into two different groups. So they're supposedly not going to be exposed to half of their classmates. Um, but I just don't think, think it's a doable thing. And I think a lot of school is, has school and learning has been moving to online, uh, and using other tools. Hell kids learn most of what they know, on their own exploratory curiosity from YouTube. They're used to watching videos. And frankly, my kids, 
spend a lot of time in school before COVID doing nothing and watching videos because anymore public schools teach for the SOLs. And unfortunately, if you're uh, if you're one of the students that, you know, can sort of just pass the SOLs without really learning because you know how to take tests. Frankly, school has been wasted on on part of the students who are there anyway, and they don't really need to be in school. Now, younger kids, K through five, uh, kids that are from difficult home situations that aren't getting um, educational nurturing from any other source, or maybe even can't even eat lunch at home, things like that. Public schools serve a, a very real role um, for safety and education of part of the students who were there. And I'm not trying to place any value judgments on any of these things, just saying that not all students in school are currently benefiting from the old school system in the first place. Some absolutely need it. Here's an opportunity. And, and of course, everybody said, well, we can't change that because no child left behind and SOLs is, you know, we have these things. We can't change it. The system is there. Well, here's an opportunity to change it. We're forced to change what we're doing anyway. Why don't we think one level or two levels up from where we are already and and maybe solve the current problem and also solve the, the ongoing problem um, of, of inequality and, and, and whatever. I don't really understand why schools have these problems, but certainly we're going to spend time on it. we got a lot of smart people forced to think about it right now. Why not strip it down to the bare boards and, and rebuild from scratch? Uh, I, I think public schools probably need it more than our economy. Um, and, you know, that sort of goes into, into, into family models because my big argument for schools is at least some part of the role that public school plays in our society is babysitting. So, you know, somewhere along the way, we lost the village. You know, we don't live with grandparents, although some get really good friends of mine, actually, their parents live with them, which I think is awesome. Um, generations are getting bigger. My grandparents are 82 and 84 or 3. They, they can't help with my 4-year-old. Um, and, and really, right now, it would be dangerous for us to be exposed to each other. But we don't no longer live in, in, in America, well, around the world. Some other people do. As white, primarily white Americans, we don't have that family model where we we have other people to help parents take care of our kids. And because we are, you know, increasingly consumer based, and because the the economy is so unequal, uh, many, probably most, families with public school kids, both parents have to work. Whereas the model up till like the 1960s and 70s was you always had a primary stay-at-home parent that could take care of the kids, and there wasn't the need of public school to serve that role. Okay, that 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 that's I understand that. I get that. Um, and and now, I mean, like, if you can't send your kids to daycare and you're a teacher, how are you going to go teach kids? And exp- I mean, it's terrible. So, are there alternative family plans that? can accommodate these things. Sure there are. There's lots of different things we could do. Uh, and, and lots of different other countries have systems to help. Um, there's a way to, to address these issues. And, but, but again, coronavirus has given us an opportunity to, to, to cut the chaff or whatever the phrase is, to, to put the wants down at the bottom, demonstrate the needs daycare, childcare, learning, education, 
food, you know, put 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 that stuff at the top and then come up with ways that that the majority of people can meet them and options within each subcategory. I mean, it isn't it's hard. Yes, it's really complicated, but probably not as complicated as as re- overhauling the healthcare system, um, which we probably could also do if we, you know, there weren't, weren't so many political um, distractions and arguments. So anyway, you know, we we have this unique situation where we we need to change how we're doing things. Um, so again, why not take that extra step and and go ahead and overhaul the whole fucking thing? Um, for the greater good, because it needs to be done. If you're going to have to redo 80% of how we go to school, why not just redo 100% of it? It's you know this is a golden chance um, to, to 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 look at these things, and really that goes kind of to our basic economy, right? You know what are our wants, what are our needs? How do we prioritize businesses that provide the needs versus the ones that provide the wants? What can businesses that do the wants do? To build up, you know, the, the, their capacity to pivot or alternative um, um, sources of revenue or whatever. You know, on the one hand, uh, some of that seems like a whole lot of extra work for something that may not even happen again in, in in most people's lifetimes. But at the same time, it just seems like common sense. It's, I mean, we spend millions of dollars a year on insurance, you know, to protect us from things that are very likely to not happen. Um, so why would you not build those insurances in uh, to the basic things that we do every day, especially when they're in the needs category? So, you know, first step, identify what are real needs for the majority of people. Subdivide those things because there's going to be a continuum, one person's need. But, you know, there's going to be some basic human needs that come out on the top. And then there's going to be some sort of um, needs for a lot of people. And then there's going to be needs for fewer people. And then we're going to get into the wants. Go ahead and na- lay that out there. And then... Use that as a blueprint to design the systems instead of cash. Because I think the part of the problem is the impetus for designing the systems that we have today, whether it's government, business, school, um, is is money, right? There, you know how how do how do we spend the less money for the whatever? It's it's a it's a capitalist economic thing versus a human needs thing. We're just looking at it the wrong way. Um, and now when we're in a situation where human needs are become uh, apparent because death is involved um maybe maybe we can use that to, to shift our thinking about how we design um the systems that govern our lives and then finally of course i said govern a part of that is going to going to require that some other entity besides a whole bunch of people help and and to me that's the role of government um, and maybe there's an alternative there too. I mean, maybe this is a chance to overhaul the government, fire everybody and start from scratch with, uh, with a new spirit, you know, re, re this is radical, but you know, in watching Hamilton, um, because we love it, uh, I, I, you know, I'm like, that's, that's what we need now. We need a revolution and I don't want violence and I hope it doesn't come to that, although there's, there's plenty of that indication that that could happen but ultimately we're you know can we have a peaceful revolution of our of america and 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 you know if there is a level above that 
if I thought we could do this at the global level, I would I would I would be pushing for that. But I don't think that can happen. There has to be some subset, and it seems like countries are that. Um, that would be awesome, I think. And I don't know that that's possible, but I think we are in a situation right now where a great, a disproportionately massive amount of change could be imposed more easily than is usually the case. Probably more easily since the last major, you know, maybe World War One or World War Two or or maybe the Civil War or maybe the Revolutionary War. Can we do it without the war? <laughs> you know, those things introduced massive discomfort uh, and dramatic situational changes for every person. And there's only one direction to go from there, and that's to rebuild. Why did this happen? What can we do to solve it? What does that look like? Let's put the good heads together that do that sort of stuff. Use the democratic process. I, I, just, don't, I just don't see how that isn't a possibility. Uh, it's, not, it's a hard problem. It's a multivariate problem. There's a million different, there's as many different opinions as there are people. But I think it's something we can do. And, you know, damn it, I think it's our responsibility to do it. Unfortunately, I'm I'm just one person. I, I can't do it myself. Um, and maybe my, my great um, irresponsibility to my fellow people is that I'm not doing anything about it besides hiding behind a video camera. But... That's what I think coronavirus is trying to tell us, that you have a massive opportunity to induce meaningful change to successive generations now. You have the infrastructure to do it. You have the brain power to do it. You have the people to do it. You have the situational crisis that necessitates it like it hasn't before. Um, though that, that combination of things has never existed. And uh, we should do something right with it. History will tell. And, and you know, that, that sort of logically from all of that flows, what would that look like? And, you know, I said it earlier, and I hadn't thought about this before. It really comes down to a focus on your value systems and your needs, the basic human needs of the majority of the people to, in, to include everyone, um, even the drastically opposed needs. Um, and, and really that gets it at, 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 at a value system. Um, and to me that represents a value system focused more on quality of life instead of money on, a, on, a, on, 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 on values that I already have. I mean, maybe this is all completely ethnocentric, uh, but values of connectedness and peace and harmony and focus on um, everyone, egalitarianism, you know, definitely more socialist. Um, yeah, and sort of working from there. And so all of those things would have to be identified first, and that's really not easy. Um, and so well, the last thing I'll sort, of, I'll sort of mention is that I think about what COVID has done worldwide, but especially to America so far, is made me question 
our 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 national value system. And the question that I keep asking myself is, what did we trade for the vulnerability that has been been exposed? We're super vulnerable to this thing, right? What was the price that we paid for that vulnerability? And it, to me, it points at things like consumerism and, um, you know, disconnectedness and individual rights. Um, and, you know, a lot of the things, arguably, that our country was founded on, uh, because I think it is important that everyone gets to explore their own interests and can be their own person, you know, whether it's religion or, or even, I guess, political or things like color and sexual orientation. I mean, all, all of that should be more equal and egalitarian than not. But I think it, our vulnerability is a result of our lack of connectedness, for lack of a better term. And there are other factors in there, but this is the, the simplified version as much as I've been able to wrap my own head around it. And and a shift away from that, you know, I guess the, the, the next question is, what would make us less vulnerable? Um, but that isn't paranoia. And that's my the last point I want to make is, I don't want to, I am not a paranoid person. I don't want to be paranoid. And in order to not be paranoid, I have had to make some decisions in my life that leave me vulnerable, naive, um, and easily taken advantage of. But living like that and not being afraid of somebody attacking me or robbing me or, or raping my family, um, those are very real risks. And I have made the naive and probably selfish choice to try to be realistic and maybe even reduce the real risk of those things in my life so that I don't spend my life anxious about things happening to me. Yes, that means I'm going to be and have been completely blindsided when bad things happen. I had an incident, um, I had my niece's wedding, you know, um, somebody behaved inappropriately and just really upset me. But I, I, I am open to that kind of vulnerability because I don't protect myself from those situations happening because I don't want to be paranoid. And I'm not suggesting that part of our value system that we redo is constant fear of the unknown to the extent of paranoia so that we're all anxious waiting for the next bad thing to happen. In fact, I, I, I've been able to do it in my personal life. I think there's some balance of acceptance of the unknown, reducing your fear, being taking calculated risks um, that can leave people less anxious and less fearful of the unknown because we're more prepared for it. Um, and, and that may be a whole idea for another podcast because I definitely live my life like that. I don't want to be anxious all the time. I, I, I've spent enough of my time feeling that way. And part of the solution is just to, to, to almost surrender myself to the fate of the world and maybe even making some irresponsible decisions about my lack of defense against the world uh, in the process. But on a day-to-day basis, it allows me to be more at peace. Um, hmm. That's interesting to think about. But, but anyway, so my last point is, you know, 
I don't, I don't want, I don't want to be fearful. I don't think we should. I don't think that should be part of the plan. So let's see if I can't close it back up. You know, coronavirus is trying. It it, it is an opportunity to change. What do we need to change? I think that could be determined. I think this is a doable thing. I think we're smart people. Uh, We get the right people on the job. We we could do wonderful things with this Um, and change what's broken in our system. Um, through a major overhauls because we're, we're already in a situation where you have to change our behavior. Break it down into wants versus needs. Understand as egalitarianly as possible all of the different types of needs in these categories. Hear the voices of the people and build new systems that are inherently what's the, resilient and robust enough to be able to weather these types of storms and also improve the product that people are getting, the quality of businesses and schools and government. Why not? We're doing it anyway. Um, why would it not break down that far? It's just not in our nature. It's much more in our nature just to live with the crappy thing that you got than try to change it. It's funny. And I was thinking about the, the last thing I'll say about this. I was thinking about this earlier. It's like, is it, you know, people use the evolutionary nature, our evolutionary nature as an excuse all the time to say, well, this is why we behave like this. This is why men cheat because it's in our evolutionary nature to be uh, promiscuous and not be monogamous. You know, it's in our evolutionary nature to be violent towards other people that aren't in our family unit because we're always protecting ourselves. Whatever, um, we got to eat meat because blah blah blah. You know, we always couch things in this evolutionary history thing. So my question is, why are we so resistant to change? Is that something that there were selection pressures? Against, Because it seems to me like the one universal truth is that things are going to change just by the nature of time and seasons and um, all these things. You know, change is the one thing you can count on. And so have has our life evolutionary lifespan been about getting away from change and minimizing that and being afraid of it or is it more in our nature to actually be in an environment that is changing so that we have something to do? You know, on the one hand, I personally like change, but I moved every five years as I was a kid. I get restless when things are the same all the time and predictable. I just, I, I attribute that more to my life, my own experience, my direct experiences rather than some evolutionary thing. But it's an interesting question to ponder. And I'll leave you with that. You know, is, why are we, why do we fear change? And is it a bad thing? Or is it in fact, an inherent part of our evolutionary being? um, And something that we should strive for more of. And in the context of what we can learn from COVID, I believe we need change. Change is long overdue. And we now have an opportunity to implement it on many levels and probably the most important levels. But I would, as always, I would love to hear what you think about those things. And you can reach me 
several different ways. A lot of them are in this video, and you'll find all of them um, on my website, and you can comment on the video. And uh, I appreciate your curiosity. This has been episode 14, Knowledge Plus Experiences Equals Wisdom. I'll see you guys next time. Thanks. Thanks.